Hello, and welcome to Let's Talk, a new series of candid conversations covering the issues facing freelance professionals today. I'm Tom Rizzo, your host, managing director and founder of Plectrum Advisors, an investment advisory firm based in Los Angeles. On each episode of Let's Talk, I'll be speaking with some of the most plugged in experts to help you and me make sense of today's changing environment and to help you be smarter about how to approach work and life. So let's get started. Hi, and welcome to another episode of Let's Talk. I'm really excited today to be talking with a very special guest, John Zion. John serves as the managing director of MKI Artists, and he's one of the leading classical music management agencies in the United States, where he directs the careers of a prestigious roster of artists, ensembles, and composers. He's also the co-founder of OurConcerts.Live, that produced and streamed more than 300 concerts during the pandemic and continues to provide access to live music to audiences around the world. John's also an active consultant, and he works with artists, administrators, and arts organizations on career development, project management, and digital marketing. John serves on the board of both the Association of Performing Arts Professionals and Chamber Music America, and has guest lectured and presented on arts-related issues at the Colburn School of Music here in Los Angeles, at the University of Michigan, the Manhattan School of Music, the Banff Center, APAP NYC, and Chamber Music America's National Conference. He was named one of the rising stars in the performing arts by Musical America in 2012, and received a BM in violin performance from the Hart School of Music. So very impressive. Welcome, John. Thanks for taking the time to speak with us today. We appreciate it. Thanks, Tom. It's an honor to be here. Tell me a little bit more about your organization, how you came to be. Yeah, so I am uh, talking to you from Burlington, Vermont. I've been based here in northern Vermont, just about an hour from the Canadian border since the summer of 2008. I grew up in Chicago, went to school in Connecticut, and when I graduated from music school, I spent one year teaching public school strings in a public school in Connecticut, uh, where I taught 6th through 12th grade strings, gigged with orchestras, taught private lessons, and after a year of that, I found myself really searching for something where I felt like I could have a bigger impact in the larger music world, and really stumbled into this side of the business. I was out in California at the St. Lawrence String Quartet Seminar, and I heard one of the members of the quartet say to his colleague that uh, we needed to call our manager. And I didn't know string quartets had managers. I didn't know that classical musicians had a whole business that was behind them. Classical soloists and conductors and orchestras were really my heroes growing up. And it opened up this whole possibility of being able to better utilize my strengths, my talents, to have a larger impact than I could as an individual musician and teacher. And so I sent out letters asking for internships to two or three dozen agencies. It's not a very big industry. And I heard back from two agencies. One was one of the major firms in New York was offering uh, to have me work for free for the summer as an intern. And the other was from a very quirky 
older impresario named Melvin Kaplan, who had moved his agency that had been founded in 1956 from Manhattan to Burlington, Vermont in the early 1970s. And he had been up here for 30 years at that point. And so he took me on as an intern and I worked for him from 2008 until 2015, at which point I had the opportunity to acquire the agency from him. Uh, we rebranded as MKI Artists and sort of overnight in 2015, it felt like we went from being kind of a dusty, a little bit out of the way agency to a young startup where anything was possible. I've had the pleasure of owning and running the company since then. We've expanded our team so that there's nine of us now. Uh, we're a fully remote company, so we're based all around the United States. At this point, there's only three of us that are left here in Burlington. The other six are in California, Virginia, New York, and, and elsewhere. And we represent a roster of... 23 ensembles, a dozen soloists, conductors, composers. So we're working quite a bit with uh, chamber music presenters, recital presenters, orchestras uh, throughout North America. You entered this business uh, uh, a little bit before the pandemic hit. Can you talk a little bit about the challenges you faced with performing and touring musicians and ensembles during the pandemic? Entered the industry in 2008, right at the start of the recession. The industry was really in a place where it was rebuilding from what at that time felt like a major disruption, but in comparison to the pandemic was really minor. March 11th, 2020, when the phones started ringing, at that point we were we were all together in an office space and you know every extension started ringing that day. And for 48 hours, you know all of the concerts that we had booked, all of the schedules across the roster were canceled. Uh, all of those concerts went out the window. You know, we went from 70 concerts from March 11th through April 15th in 48 hours, all of those went away. In the next couple of weeks, everything went away through May, then June, then through the summer. I remember doing financial calculations of, you know, how do we keep the business open? You know, what are our reserves? What's it going to look like if concerts don't come back until June, until July, until the summer, until Christmas? You know, the, the predictions kept getting longer and longer term and kept feeling more ridiculous, but then um, things kept getting, getting worse and worse in terms of the violence ability of live performance to to happen. And we made a pivot really early on to streaming to digital content. I'm not somebody who likes to be bored. And I think as much of anything was the self-preservation of keeping myself busy, keeping the artists on the roster busy. But by early April, together with a partner who has a background in technology, we had established our Concerts.Live, uh, which is a performing arts focused live streaming platform and company. By the first weekend in April, we did a benefit concert for something called Artist Relief Tree, which was giving funding to individual artists to help them get through without having any work. With that first concert, we had something like 2,000 people who were watching. We raised $25,000 for that cause. And for us, that was really a proof of concept that artists could use streaming, could use virtual content to be able to continue working, continue staying in touch with artists, as well as continue generating revenue during, during the pandemic. The next 18 months then, largely with artists that 
uh, are on the MKA roster, but also going much further afield, including outside of classical music and working quite a bit with artists like Pink Martini and Ben Folds, hip hop star G Herbo, opened up kind of a whole different network, a whole world for me in terms of working with about three dozen presenting organizations to help them produce, stream, and do the ticketing for their virtual concerts that could happen during the pandemic. That's, that's an amazing story where the crisis on one side provides opportunity on the other side. And I'm married to a classical musician. I think one of the things that, as I got to know uh, the classical world more through my wife, is if you're going to do this well, it takes every ounce of your brain and you really can't think of much else besides execution on your instrument and constant work in that area. You get people that are really highly accomplished artists on the one side, but on the other side, they may have neglected looking a little bit outside of their area for um, things that might be able to benefit them in terms of how to grow in ways that are maybe a little bit different from the actual execution on the instrument. You want to talk a little bit about, about that concept? Uh, I agree entirely with your characterization that classical musicians have largely had to have that kind of tunnel vision because the standard for playing is just so incredibly high. And I think that that tunnel vision has left us in a position now where there's a generation of musicians that play at an unbelievably high level and are incredibly creative artists, have wonderful ideas, are looking to connect what they do through their art with broader communities, connecting to community impact, social justice. It's such an incredibly ripe time artistically. And one of the big challenges that I think the industry is facing that I'm facing every day in terms of seeking out opportunities for artists on my roster is that narrow focus has meant that most of what classical musicians have done has been for the rest of the field, but not for the broader community. And when I think about the way that classical musicians market themselves, what they trumpet on social media, what they focus on when they're booking themselves with orchestras, with presenting organizations, are things that are understood, appeal to a tiny subset of the population who is highly knowledgeable about classical music, understands this longer multi-generation trajectory that this art form has come from, where it's passed down from one generation to the other. But the reality is that that single-minded focus on quality, on impressing our peers, has meant that classical musicians and classical music as a genre has been separated from the rest of the world. And there's this real barrier between the way that classical music speaks to itself and what what classical music needs to communicate in order to speak to a much broader community. There hasn't there, there needed to be this moment of crisis for that to happen because that's something that's been happening slowly for for a century uh, in terms of aging audiences, in terms of classical music being so heavily supported by contributed revenue, by donor support and not from earned revenue, from ticket sales. The pandemic has really changed that. And we're in a moment right now where classical music audiences are still down 25 to 40% from what they were pre-pandemic. We're seeing outside of classical music that many other live 
entertainment genres are doing tremendously well and that there is a real difference between, you know, when I talk to a university presenter who does many genres, who presents Broadway, tribute bands, comedy, dance, they are seeing that classical music is doing worse than those other genres. And there's a real opportunity right now for musicians for organizations to think about how do they broaden their marketing? How do they broaden the way that they speak about classical music and the things that they care about that is going to connect with a larger community and that's going to allow this art form to remain vibrant and relevant in a way that it's not right now and where there are real challenges for the classical music as an industry that are coming from that. It's a very interesting take on this, that this this crisis of the pandemic almost had to happen in order to shake this up enough so that maybe something can be done about it. I'm connected to a lot of music schools. We go around and we speak to music, music school students, particularly graduate students, about finance and investing and that kind of thing to try to help them get a handle on uh, on things, just like we help people here in the Los Angeles area, the studio musician community. What's your take on what might need to change or happen or, or get broadened within the university environment in order to address what you're talking about here? I think sort of two things simultaneously. One is that the quality of the playing, what people are able to do instrumentally, that comes from the rigor of a music school curriculum and being able to focus single-mindedly on that artistic growth during those four years of undergrad and however many other years of graduate work that that musician does. That's really important. And the basis for all our form, the basis for classical music is that foundation, is that rigor of technique, is that ability to be able to speak naturally through the instrument. And so for me, that's a non-negotiable and that's something that music schools generally are doing very well and that they need to continue doing. And at the same time, I think that broadening their curriculum, connecting into their broader local and regional communities is really important so that when those students graduate, they haven't only spoken to their colleagues, their peers, their teachers for those past four, six, eight years, but that they've actually had that opportunity to communicate to that broader community, to practice doing that, to learn what connects, and to have built a network either locally, regionally, or for the very few nationally or internationally, that's going to be the basis of their career. So I don't envy music school leaders. Uh, I think it's a very challenging prospect of how do you incorporate this network building, these other skills on top of that instrumental training, which does require that single-minded, really focused practice and training over multiple years. But I think it, it requires a really nuanced approach. It requires a layered approach and it requires a constant approach where this isn't something that just happens right before you graduate or you're thrown into the deep end and you have to do this early in your career, but something that that requires a really structured and strategic way to incorporate this into a well-rounded music education. Back in my early training days, there was a kind of an unspoken spoken concept that anything other than the focus on what's really important in this music is less important in your life than the music. The real important stuff is the art. 
and the and in the development and the accomplishment. And as we mature and get a little bit older, you realize that th those concepts are actually not accurate, that you can focus on lots of different things. I love the way that you, you put that. Um, and I think that the way the most successful artists do that are one through Gen developing genuine human relationships and prioritizing human relationships in all of their interactions. So in thinking about the way that a soloist interacts with an orchestra, that is a connection between kind of a faceless institution, faceless organization, and the, the public profile of that soloist. But the reality is that that is a human relationship between that soloist, their representative, and an executive director, a director, director of artistic planning, a marketing director, a conductor, and a room full of 100 musicians who make up that full-size orchestra. And the soloists who are getting invited, the ones who are getting invited back, the ones that are doing the larger projects are the ones who really develop a real relationship with everybody in that room, with all of those stakeholders, finds out what it is that those stakeholders care about, both as an organization, but also individually, and then looks for ways to build bridges and build projects and repertoire to be able to, to meet those needs. And I think connected to that is something I hear often from artists is I'm willing to do anything to get the gig. And, you know, what is that orchestra looking for? Oh, I could do that. I could do this. I could do that. You know, tell them here's 12 projects that I want to do. And I think that taking a step back and realizing that that approach is creating a lot of work on the organization side. And something that I tell artists a lot is part of your job is to do that work for the organization. And that the artist that's going to get that gig is the one that is going to come to that organization with a crystal clear, persuasive vision and idea for a project. And then all of the ways that that project is going to work, examples of things you've done that have been similar in similar markets. And that the artist that is going to be most valuable to that organization is somebody who's going to say, you know, here's the program I want to do. Here's the repertoire. Here are the larger issues that are connected to this. Here are the organizations that I've seen you collaborate within your community. Here are the community engagement projects that can come from this piece. And here's this pretty package all tied up with a bow that I'm going to hand to you. And you as an arts leader, as an arts organization with limited capacity, limited staff, you're going to be able to take this to your donors, to your audience. You're going to plug this into the season. This is going to make you look really good. And those are the artists who are most successful within our field. That's such a uh, such an intelligent approach to what everybody wants, right? Because every, everybody wants to work more. Everybody wants to do more concerts. Everybody wants to make more money. Everybody wants to have better visibility. One of the problems is, is this approach is a complete 180 from the practice room for six hours a day when you're studying. Because these principles do not apply to how you get good. There is a, a real disconnect, I think, in the early stages of an artist reaching their level of accomplishment. The things that conspire to make you the best are not these things that you just talked about. The ones that I see that succeed and seem to be doing the best are the ones that have naturally gregarious personalities that enjoy people. If you enjoy people and you know how to talk to people and enjoy them, this kind of 
comes a little more naturally than somebody that says, what's important about me is how good I am at this instrument. Absolutely. And I think that one of the responsibilities that I see that we have as an agency and as artist managers is to when, especially when we're onboarding and starting to work with a young artist, is to really look at what they do well, but also to really identify with them what they don't yet do well and get them the resources, the coaching, the training that they need to improve in that area. And so one of the things that we do is by having a roster, a multi-generational roster, there is that opportunity where most of the young artists who are coming out of that roster have real personal connections where they have worked with some of the older artists on that roster. And so there's already sort of that teacher-student relationship when they're sort of coming into our ecosystem. And then we're bringing in expertise from, from other places when we need that. You know, We're potentially aligning them with a financial advisor if that's an area that they haven't worked with before. We're bringing in a communications coach if it's somebody who has a lot of trouble speaking from stage or interacting with people at a reception and so on. So these are all things that anybody can work on. And it's just a matter of being vulnerable enough to acknowledge that they need some help and then finding the experts who are able to help in the same way that you know everybody's piano and violin teacher or voice teacher started doing from when they were four years old. I still attend many concerts, classical concerts here in Los Angeles, primarily because of the connection to my wife. I'm always struck by the impact of audience engagement by either an artist or conductor, or presenter, or whatever, different from the level of artistic accomplishment. The effect that that can have on an audience. Viscerally, you can feel it in the audience. You can feel the audience being swayed, being brought in, being ready to hear what you have to say. I think that that's just right. And I think that the recording process and the way that classical musicians approach studio recordings is, is a microcosm of that. And I think that what classical musicians always want to do is to tour and perform repertoire as much as possible before going into the studio, before recording it. And um, they want to have that opportunity to season the repertoire. They want to have the opportunity to see how it lives and breathes in front of a live audience. And that is spectacular from an artistic standpoint. From an audience development, marketing, and tour standpoint, that's a little bit of a disaster. Because what we want to do is we want Ideally, and what we see happen in the pop world, what we see happening in almost every other genre is that artist develops their projects, develops their program. They go into the studio, they produce that record. It gets lots of press. It gets lots of attention. It gets people who uh, from their fan base who are buying that, who are getting to know that music. And then a tour is built in terms of there's already been that foundation, that critical mass of interest that, yes, this is, this is a project, this is a program that we really want to listen to. That's a conversation that I've had a lot with record companies in terms of, you know, how can we change that? And it's an example of the kinds of needs that classical musicians have artistically that sometimes butt up against the commercial realities of trying to create as robust of a tour as possible for them. That exists in my world. You know, I'm more on the jazz side of things. And some of the artists that I looked up to when I was coming up and, and still look up to, people like Chick Corea, for instance, 
he never looked at a recording project as anything more definitive than this is what was going on today. You know, this is what we're working on. This is not defining me. This is not what I'm going to be doing next year. This is not necessarily here to live forever. It's just, we're going to document where we are now. We're going to record it. We'll put it out there. We're going to go tour and we're going to do it again next year. We'll be in a different place next year and maybe it'll be better. Maybe it'll be worse. I think that there is a tendency for people who are paying attention to details to say, we're not ready to make our best record yet um, because we haven't worked on this music. And that actually is true, right? Does that mean you shouldn't make the record and go out and do this? No, it doesn't. That's difficult to get across to artists. It's difficult to get artists to be comfortable with. I would say most artists are never comfortable with that. Even the pop guys and the jazz people, uh, they would prefer to do it in the way that you had articulated. You mentioned in passing a little bit of um, non-classical artists that you have worked with a little bit. Can you talk a little bit more about that, John, and tell me what you're doing in that area? That's been one of the real gifts that have come out of the pandemic has been how I've been able to broaden my network to work closely with artists who who perform outside of classical music. And I think one of the things that I've been most struck by is just how focused a lot of those artists, and especially the really successful ones, are on identifying who their audience is and how to communicate to them and what is going to resonate most strongly with that audience. And for me, that's that's feels really refreshing and that feels really revolutionary in terms of in working really just in classical music, there's such so much of a focus on who the gatekeepers are, what they're going to respond to, and how those gatekeepers are going to grant opportunities and then bring an audience into the hall. And what I really love about a hard ticket touring artist, somebody who is developing their own fan base, who's thinking about you know, I've been to Denver three times. I probably have an audience of about 300 now. I'm going to try to get into this 500 seat venue. That's going to be the strategic goal there. And to move up here is that it feels so much more sustainable in terms of that artist, you know, yes, having relationship with presenters, with some of those gatekeepers, there's incredible value in the work that those individuals are doing locally and regionally in building and cultivating an audience. But those people are also running under capacity um, trying to do a million things thrown in lots of different directions and can really use some more support from artists to be able to bring in audience and to really help to shift the ratio of, you know, that contributed versus earned income. Before the pandemic, I mean, a really healthy big city arts organization was lucky, was what had about 60% contributed revenue in their in their overall budget. A lot of those organizations now have shifted more to 80 or 90%. I worry about the sustainability of that even if there are donors who are willing to continue giving at that level, I have to believe that when they look out at halls that are 50%, 60%, 70% full, um, that's something that is just not going to be sustainable long term. So looking outside of classical music, I think the 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 biggest thing that I feel drawn to bring into my world, to bring into classical music, is that audience focus just at the start of that process now, but really thinking about what does artists, really effective artist-led marketing look like? What does it look like for an artist to really be able to identify who are my fans? What are those demographics? Where do they live? And then how could that get incorporated into their touring, their recording, their, their performance? career. 
I've always felt that most artists have many more people that either do appreciate them or would appreciate them than are showing up at the concerts. There are many more. The issue is, is they're just not being reached or they just don't know, or they just aren't understanding that this is available, this value, or that this is the only time they're gonna be in this city or that kind of thing. That's different than we need to expose more people to this music because people who don't know about us will then become our fans. That's, that's kind of a different subset. This is kind of like leaving money on the table here, that there are fans out there, you're, you just haven't reached them. And it's not just musicians yeah. that, that do this. I mean, I, I think I have several friends who are uh, comedians and they do the same thing. Yeah, I think that art, artists are in a really unique position to be able to speak and cultivate a fan base in a way that managers, presenters, organizations cannot. And, and I think that you know, the three things that really give me optimism right now are one, that one of Apple's flagship products right now is their Apple Music Classical. And so that a company of the size of Apple saw an opportunity in the market to be able to put the resources and the incredible marketing into releasing that as one of their spring of 2023 major products. Two is, you know, there's three major motion pictures this year. There's Tar, there's the Chevalier Saint George, and there's the Bernstein movie that's coming out this summer that are, you know, classical, really serious classical music focused films that Hollywood is putting millions of dollars into to, to put out there. And then three is um, classical TikTok, not a world that I know personally, but my understanding is that uh, uh, classical talk, the uh, hashtag for classical music has something like 58 million views on TikTok. And so I really strongly believe that there is an audience out there. There is not, um, there hasn't been the trigger or the foundation that's been built to get enough of them into a concert hall to have that live music experience. And I think that artists are in a really unique and powerful position to be able to help to bring some of that community that has an interest in the art form, but has not come into the live performance venue yet. With that knowledge of that there, there is an audience out there, how to find it is the task at hand. Yeah. Well, John, this has just been so enlightening and interesting to hear how the how the insides of this work. So there's a whole machine behind this. And I really appreciate you taking the time to share your expertise with this. If our viewers would like to learn more about your organization, we'll put the, uh, the website MKI Artists up on the screen right now. And you can go to the website and learn more about who it is that John represents. There's information about how they do things. And we encourage you to check it out. John, just, just thanks so much for sharing your expertise and insights with us. We really appreciate it. Let's check in again and, and see what progress has gone on and what else you're doing. And uh, we would just love to stay in touch with you. Yeah, thank you, Tom. I've, I've really enjoyed this so much. You've had wonderful questions and I've really enjoyed hearing your insights and I'd love to check in and thank you. This has been, Great. This has been a real pleasure. Well, that's it for today's episode of Let's Talk with John Zion of MKI Artist Management. Thanks for watching. We hope you'll come back for more. We've got some great guests lined up and we'll be sure to let you know when the episodes are available. Thanks for watching. Thanks again for watching. 
We hope you'll come back for more. We've got some great guests lined up and we'll be sure to let you know when they're available. Thanks again.